Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Assad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Afroz Khan. Afroz is a city councilor at large in Newburyport, Massachusetts, which is a coastal city about 35 miles north of Boston. Afroz is the first Muslim woman to serve on Newburyport's city council and recently was re-elected to a second term. Afroz is the daughter of Indian immigrants and spent most of her early life in Chicago. When she moved to Newburyport, she decided to get more involved in her community after having her two children. When she is not a parent or serving her city, Afroz works as an engineer focused on energy efficiency. Afroz, welcome to American Muslim Project. I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about Newburyport and why you decided to get involved in local politics. Yeah, sure. Um, so Newburyport, uh, we moved here in 2005. And it's uh, it's actually, a, I don't know if you've ever been here, but it's a, it's a small community, but it's still a city. And I, I think I could best characterize it, good or bad, when one of my friends from California came to visit, uh, they were walking around and they're like, oh my gosh, this reminds me just like of that town in Connecticut where the Gilmore Girls was filmed. And it's really, it's got a very quaint element to it. A lot of cobblestone streets, which I think is very characteristic of New England in general. But it, it has just this charm, a very historic charm. It's small, so there's always, like, you could just get through the whole town center in just a matter of minutes. But there's just a really um, pretty, pretty very serene uh, kind of atmosphere here. And we're also by the river, Merrimack River, and uh, located close to the ocean. So there's just a lot of aspects up here that are really um, quite enjoyable for, for us living here. Uh, now I just, I can't get the image of stars hollow out of my head. Are you a Rory or a Lorelei? <laughs> Uh, Lorelai. <laughs> All right, that's a, that, that says a lot. <laughs> it does, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> we could just finish this now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, done. Um, no, that's that's really interesting. Why did you decide to get into local politics? Oh yes, I, I guess I could say I was asked by others to to consider, and and part of it is as soon as I got here, you know, one of the things is it's not very diverse. So ninety eight percent Caucasian up here in Newburyport, and I think my husband and I found it. A little humorous when we moved here, uh, an Indian restaurant also opened up. So we were assumed to be the proprietors because oh, we that's... also looked, you know, like we would be the proprietors of an Indian restaurant here. And I remember, like, I'd go jogging a lot. I love to run. And everywhere I went, I would always see people say, I think I've seen you running in town. And I'm like, yes, you did. And I didn't, at first, I was like, wow, I, they must. I don't know why everyone saw me running. And I, I think it was the fact that I stood out while I was running because it is so not diverse. Um, it's, it's very different now. But I started getting involved because of that. I think mainly after I had children, the things that they kind of experienced in terms of lack of understanding culturally or even our faith, there were a lot of kind of negative incidences they faced. And so I started volunteering in the schools a little bit more. And that kind of led to being on the board of the parent-teacher organization. Uh, I also was treasurer for them for a while. And then I think that just turned into people asking me to take it to another level and serve the city in another way, which I never would have thought to do. Can you tell me more about the, your children's experience? Yeah, it was it was interesting because I also would say my, my growing up, I grew up uh, outside of Chicago in a suburb there, but I don't think I ever felt as... Um, I guess, isolated and not celebrating Christmas. And for some reason out here, especially in Newburyport, which is a very, um, it, it's actually a little Christmas village, to be honest, around the holidays. It's beautiful here. 
But I think it was really hard for people to understand that there are kids that don't wait for Santa and wait for things from Santa. So uh, initially before they started school, you know, the adults would always look at my kids and say, are you excited about Santa coming or after Christmas? What did you get from Santa? And they would always look at me puzzled, like, what is this mystery I'm hiding from them? And I would just, they would hear me say, we don't celebrate, we don't celebrate. And then pretty soon you had little three-year-olds, you know, correcting adults, oh, we don't celebrate. <laughs> but in school, it got a little harder, you know, being teased for being um, being brown. That That was my first kind of foray into the conversation was when my five-year-old, when she started taking the bus and she came off the bus and she seemed a little dejected and sad. And I said, what's going on? And she said, why did God make us brown? Wow. <laughs> and, I, and that made my heart sink. And For I, sure. and I was just kind of, and, and thankfully I had a president like Obama to point to and say, well, you know, our president is brown as well. And I started bringing up all these examples to her. And then that kind of became other things, you know, why, uh, why do you guys not celebrate Christmas? You know, are you on the bad list kind of thing? And it it took some time for me to really try to find a place though, not to be um, kind of going antagonistically towards the issue, but more like, hey, this is a great way to educate. But I think it was hard when my husband, who's a, uh, he's a physician, he got a call at his offices. And it was interesting because it was another father who told my husband that, hey, I just want you to know your your daughter mentioned to some kids that Santa isn't real. And my daughter's really upset and crying about that. And my husband called me and said, can you, what what is Rissa saying? Can you please talk to her about that? And I was a little frustrated because I'm like, well, it's a teaching moment. And I see everything as a teaching moment. I'm like, well, it would have been nice instead of that parent picking up and calling you at work to maybe also tell their child that, well, there are some people that don't, don't, they, they practice something else or, um, you know, a way to teach. And I think that I was a little frustrated that my daughter or we were seemed like we were doing something bad. Like I sent my daughter out on a mission to squelch the name of Santa, which I did not do. But I did learn after that with my second daughter, I'm like, don't mention Santa, whatever you do, (laughs) Santa's real, don't say anything. But then, of course, you know, she, uh, she's, she's my second, so definitely a little bit more, has a little bit more spark in her. But I know she did, um, I got another call from a parent during lunchtime, and uh, the kids were at lunch, and it was a parent monitor, and they called me on my cell, and they said, um, I have a bunch of kids here crying because your daughter just told them that the, that the gifts they got from Christmas were from their parents and not Santa. And I, and my daughter knew well enough, but I think she got mad that they got all these presents they were talking about, that it was her little character that was just like, oh yeah, well, let me tell you something. (laughs) They sound like uh, fun people for sure. (laughs) Oh, no, no. I took some heat on that and I had to just, anyway, so that's been kind of, I I think, some experiences we faced and, um, and then it just kind of evolved into more, like I said, the teaching moment. So actually the schools were really kind enough to let me come and speak to all the third graders every year during Ramadan. And I would bring samosas and, oh. and dates. And this is obviously pre, you know, pre-COVID for sure. But I mean, it was wonderful that the school was very open to me coming as a parent and, and sharing. And, and, and now these kids, when I see them, now that they're older, you know, they say, oh, hi, Miss Khan. I remember. I love those samosas. You know, they, they still remember. And, and that's been kind of my, my message is that we, we take the opportunity to teach and make it a, 
an educational and a, a way to connect with people. Yeah, really cute for sure. It seems like a, a lot of my, you know, you know my sister very well, who's been on the on the show and and um, also an elected uh, uh, official. It seems like a lot of people, especially at the local level, a lot of the work that they do needs to be this kind of interfaith dialogue and and community building. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of those things that if you aren't part of your community or if you're not contributing or being right there next to every other person, then your voice is not going to be heard. And more than anything, even just demonstrating somebody who is a minority, whether it's in your faith or in how you you look or your immigration status or your sexual orientation, you just by being there are showing a voice for all of those minority voices. And I think that's why community engagement is so critical because it, it just opens one's eyes further and feels a connection on, on basic matters. Connection on, yeah, we all care about the kids. We all care about, um, you know, not paying too much in taxes. We all want to stay in our homes. We all care about public safety. I think there's a commonality aspect that that needs to be more brought to the forefront as opposed to the divisiveness that sometimes can can take take root. So that's kind of how I see it is you got to do community engagement. You got to be honest about who you are and what you are. And that's I've never been afraid of that honesty. Oh, that's great. Um, <laughs> one recent incident, I guess it was maybe a couple of years ago, I was I was reading about online uh, was that uh, someone wrote a pretty Islamophobic uh, opinion piece in the local paper, and you had a pretty strong reaction to it. Can you tell me about that? that yes. episode? Yeah. So um, it's it's funny because I had just gotten elected as a city councilor, and it's it's a well known person who writes in. The, so the paper has letter to the editors, and then it has an as I see it column. They're not necessarily working with the paper, but they're they're a contributor, and so you also get more words that could be printed. And the as I see it column that was done was talking about the um, insurgence of um, Muslims in high positions. And really, it was kind of criticizing the Obama administration for some of the the people that were allowed to come and be uh, heading certain areas or cabinets. And 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 obviously, this is during Trump's administration. And so there was some kind of correlation about why Trump was good for us. But the piece that that really frustrated me the most was the connection of a Pakistani physician who served under Obama for um, under some health or some some I cannot remember the specifics, but his name was, uh, you know, clearly a name that I would recognize. Maybe my cousin could have been my cousin, but they were automatically connected to be a terrorist. And, and, and it was so, it was said so definitively that I could not help but have a sinking feeling in my stomach that this person, who I even Googled and looked up, had no connection whatsoever, was maligned and, and, and kind of hypothesized to be this type of an individual just because of their name. So, and this is in my local paper, and this is a local resident. And I was just recently elected. And all of a sudden, I, I got a sinking feeling in my stomach about the harm that puts me in, the harm that puts my family in. And I, I was furious. So I did reach out to the Council on American and Islamic Relations of Massachusetts, CARE. And I know um, the director there pretty well. And I forwarded this to him. And I said, 
this is, I cannot, this is, what do I do about something like this? You know, do I report it? Where can I like, just what, what do I do? And, and he said, well, you should, you know, it's, it's good to respond with, with, with your own letter to the editor. And so I did, I, I wrote from the heart. It was my first probably letter to the editor as a city councilor and probably my last actually, because I do really try to stay out of the paper and try to look at everything impartially, but this one was personal. Sure. And I, and I really just said it that way. I, I really took it from a personal, like I am here. And then at the end I said, and I'm also serving my city as a counselor and this type of rhetoric puts my whole family in danger. And, and um, I, I did get emails from a lot of residents after that. And then there was like an influx, like just so many that came out in support of me and countering this person's points. Of course, I was really taken with uh, what you wrote in your letter to the editor, a little section here. I was wondering if you could read it, um, read it to yes, us. Yes, sure. I ask, I ask all that have read this and agree with Mr. Russo to please meet a Muslim, go to a mosque, reach out to me, a civil servant who is now accessible to the public, a civil servant who is worried that when her local paper validates bigotry, she now has to worry about her family and the effect this type of article has on any Muslim or any recent immigrant for that matter. Really powerful. And and yeah. I really love that you made yourself available to people. And it seems like people responded to you in, in a positive way. They, they did. And I absolutely remember writing this, even though it was like three years ago, maybe. And I, I had tears in my eyes, actually, as I was writing it, because at the time, you know, I, I, my daughter was what, sixth grader already facing the, the, the issues one goes through in middle school. My, my kids have never felt like they completely fit in. And um, this article was sitting there right on the table as I'm getting her get her shoes on and her backpack. And, and I'm just looking at that title of that article and, and with tears, like this is what my child is. These type of people are really putting people in danger. And, and the, the be able to say those words is it's hurtful when no one when when we're innocent, we did nothing. She's innocent. My kids are innocent. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk about Afroza's upbringing in the 1980s and the lessons she learned living in Alaska. You're listening to American Muslim Project. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Afroz Khan, the first Muslim to be elected to the city council in the coastal city of Newburyport, Massachusetts. Afroz spent most of her early life in Chicago, but eventually lived in seven different states, including Alaska. I asked her to share more about her upbringing. Yeah, yeah, my crazy upbringing. I um, I, I had a very unusual upbringing, I would say. You know, it's it's one that I, I sometimes now being in my, I, I'm 51 now, and I reflect on my life, especially as I look at my kids. And I think in my head, where was I at their age? And so let me just tell you what's so bizarre is, you know, we start off pretty, like most families, you know, grew up in the Midwest, born and raised in Chicago. My parents were, you know, immigrants from India. And then at the age of my age of 11, I have four siblings. I'm the third of four. My dad decides to move to California. And it was an interesting decision because I think that's where everything kind of changed in the course of our life. I think if we stayed in Chicago, things would be very different. And I, I would just be probably just born, raised, and probably just stayed in Chicago. But what ended up happening by going to California is, you know, for my father, who was really the only um, kind of one that worked, and my mom stayed home with us, 
you know, he realized how much he, he probably bit off more than he could chew by moving a family of four to a place where he wanted to have the best public schools. So we went to Palo Alto, but it was also probably one of the most expensive communities to live in. Yeah, sure. So, you know, we initially rented a, a place, but on his salary, you know, it was really hard to sustain being in Palo Alto. So um, from Palo Alto, after being there for three years, we moved up to Anchorage, Alaska, because wow. he was working on a project that kind of um, had him kept, kept going up there for the project oversight. Uh, he was also an engineer. And so when he kept coming back from Anchorage, you know, we should have seen it coming, but he would get this look on his face when he talked about it that, that I'd never seen in my father before. And, um, in a good I, way. In a good way, but we didn't know what it would do to our lives. Like, <laughs> because I remember, you know, because California, we were very excited to be in California sure. in the Midwest, you know. And uh, I just remember uh, at that point, too, my older two siblings had already gotten into college in, in San Diego. So they were moving to La Jolla. But my dad came and told me and my younger brother were moving to Alaska. And we sat. I was uh 14, 14, and my younger brother was 13, and we just sat there. I remember sitting outside of our of our Palo Alto house. Like I remember sitting on the porch, and we just sat there. We did not want to help. We were just miserable. I think if anyone walked by us, we'd look like the little rascals. You know, I don't know if you ever saw that show. Yeah, but sure, of course. We were just kind of sitting there, just with our our you know chins on our hands and are just like miserable. <laughs> like both of us thinking what we could do, how we could plot to get out of this this thing to go to Alaska. But we did. So we moved up to Alaska and I, I stayed for a very brief period up there because, um, and this is where I think one of the things that's kind of unique in my perspective is that my father was so committed to education that when we got to Anchorage, and I think he tried to find the best high school in Anchorage, he didn't realize how life in Alaska was very different for teenagers. And I was, you know, a teenager. In and the 80s, was, the this is the eighties. This yep. is the eighties. Nineteen eighty-four is when we moved up there. Okay. And it didn't take long for me to come back from high school and tell my dad everything I was seeing. Teenage pregnancies, rampant use of marijuana everywhere. And um, it was not anything compared to what I think we had been kind of maybe sheltered from in Palo Alto. And so I think I kept seeing my dad's eyes kind of be like, oh, really? And I think the worst part, and I laugh about this, is while kids are doing drugs in the hallway, right? Wow. I, I was eating an apple in the library and I got detention. <laughs> so <laughs> I remember <laughs> Why is that? Because you were uh, eating the food in the library? Yes, yes. And I remember telling my dad about that and I was so angry. I'm like, there's people doing drugs everywhere in school. And I have detention because of this. And my dad was laughing. He just thought that was the funniest thing. And then I told my sister who was in college at UCSD and my sister was appalled. And she talked to my dad and said, get a froze out of Anchorage. I looked at the high school here in La Jolla. It's wonderful and I will be her guardian. So oh, my wow. sister who was only two years older than me, 17, was my guardian as I went oh, to wow. high school in La Jolla High School. So oh, wow. my, my dad came, he, like I said, education was the thing to convince him. And that's what it, that's what we did. So I, I grew I mean, up. That sounds pretty progressive for an Indian Muslim father in the eighties, right? <laughs> to let it, their daughter go off and live with another daughter. It was hilarious. And I remember my brother's there too. So it was my older brother, my sister and me. And the three of us lived in an apartment above, um, 
above these stores in La Jolla. It was uh, it was a great time, but it, it cracks me up because you're absolutely right. I remember my cousins, everyone else were like, you guys are so lucky. How did you get like this? What's and then the, the aunts and uncles would like telling my dad, you're crazy. Your yeah. kids are by themselves. <laughs> they're going to go. They're going to become messed up. You know, it's just it was funny, but it was a it was a fun time. I mean, we were good kids. My sister was stricter than my mom because, you know, <laughs> she had the burden now of being a parent to her younger sibling, which really changed our relationship from sibling to like really her being the authority figure. And I remember fighting her once. I was like. I wanted to go to a sleepover and she said no. And then I called my dad and my dad said yes. <laughs> and then I told <laughs> and then I told my sister and she got on the phone with my dad and she goes, I'm done then. You take her back. <laughs> She's like, if you're gonna override my decision. So my dad took it back and I couldn't go. Oh <laughs> that is a great story. But you you ended up going back to Alaska for college, is that right? Yeah, so this is a lesson learned to everybody. Um, so what happened is I finished uh, my high school and then got into UCSD, which is right there in La Jolla, the same college my sister was at. And it's a really good school. And and, uh, and I would say Afroz was very tempted by the lovely beach and everything that she was enjoying previous to college. And I did not do well my first year of college oh. at UCSD. And I remember my dad was like, I'm paying out-of-state tuition for you. <laughs> So because you didn't do so well, you're going to go to school in Alaska. And I'm like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. If you told me that before I entered all of this, I may have tried a little harder. <laughs> yeah. You had told me that if I kept my grades or GP at this level, that I could stay in California. But that was never presented that way. So it was too late. And I was yanked back up. And I went to Anchorage, uh, University of Alaska Anchorage, before then going further north to Fairbanks to do my wow. degree in electrical engineering. So I do laugh at the whole thing because... That was something else. Sure. How does your upbringing and living in multiple locations, including, you know, a liberal place like California and La Jolla to a conservative place like Alaska, how has that informed you both as a parent and as uh, an elected leader? And actually, I, I, I am very grateful for every experience because a lot of the, the folks I met up in Alaska, I'm still connected with. And, you know, Alaska is a very, as you know, it's a, it's a red state and it's got a lot of people though, who are very passionate about their rights, you know, in terms of being able to do what they want, whether it's having their, their guns or whether it's being able to, you know, practice whatever faith they want or ever, you know, there's, you know, freedoms and, and, and I guess the rights can fall in a range of different areas of, of practice. And um, a lot of my friends were Republican. I was Republican up, up in Alaska. Oh, and wow. I, uh, yep, and I voted uh, for George Bush Sr. I remember that. And that was the climate. That was really, you know, I saw myself as fiscally conservative. The, the issues that I really believed in at that time aligned with the, the same uh, at the time of the Republican Party. And, and so, um, but so that's why in my hat now, I'm a Democrat now. And I, I can understand, I think, issues on both sides. And I could see where the breakdown has happened over the last few years. And I, I am very hopeful that we can have some amends. I, I am. I, I have to be, I guess. I'm, I am an optimistic person. But that's where, living in Alaska, and I also lived in Knoxville, Tennessee. That's where I got my first job. So I've lived in communities where there is a little bit more of a conservative um, approach uh, especially Tennessee, too, was very much so. Um, I remember, you know, what I faced in Alaska, 
probably was in terms of if I faced any discrimination was probably minimal because I was there for college. But Tennessee was interesting because it was a subtle type of difference. Like if I was walking with somebody and they were not the same skin color as me, we got looks, you know, like wow. like the, the interracial aspect. Whereas I never felt that in Alaska, but I definitely felt that in Tennessee. So I think in different parts, and remember, these are like, I'm talking about 80s, early 90s. I sure. think today we're in a very different place. I would hope so. I mean, I cannot say 100%. But those places and those experiences have all contributed a little bit to my um, being able to at least understand and then talk to folks who might be coming from that and being their whole life. You know, I've been fortunate enough to have little aspects of this so I could shape and grow. Sometimes it's hard to be to grow when you might be surrounded by certain components or elements and it seems like an important skill set for a politician. I, I, I think it helps me. I mean, I, I feel like I, I bring that to the table. And, I, and, I, and as a politician, I, I'm, I feel like it's a compliment, compliment when people say, well, I don't know how you're going to vote. <laughs> and instead of being frustrated by that, I'm, I'm, I see it as a compliment. It's because I'm not going to always just follow the status quo. I will ask questions and do what I think is right. What advice would you give to women or Muslim women or people of color that are running for office? You know, there's there's several things that that it takes to put yourself out there. And, and I think one of the, the most important things is being able to listen. And let me say that without sounding too cliche, but but oftentimes we are very much in a, a position where we might know where we want to be or might know about something. But we should all go into it knowing that we don't know anything. And and for me, I, I think especially, I think you're held up to a higher standard when you're not like everyone else. And, and I'm not going to say, but if you're of not like everyone else at that table, you are looked at as um, maybe, maybe not qualified. Uh, and I'm not saying anyone ever said that to me, but there's always this kind of, this kind of left out there, you know, do I deserve to be there? And the question is, you absolutely not only deserve to be there, but you are somebody that more people might even feel more compelled to talk with. And I feel like that's a, that's a tool. That, that's powerful because that, that means you now have insight, not only insight, but support so that when you debate, when you talk, when you go and reach out, that's, what, that's essentially what this job is. That's what public service is. That's what being a in, in politics is we are developing policy that represents everyone else. What better way to have their voice than being someone that listened and had them talk to us so that we can be the ones to, to push what they think. So I think that's the, the biggest one. The second is I tell everyone to, to, to brush up on your public speaking skills because <laughs> you are a remarkable speaker. That, I gotta that, say. Is, that is powerful though. And the reason is my mama made me take Toastmasters because when I joined that company in Tennessee, my first job was to go do um, teach other, other utility um, engineers about harmonics. And I remember here is this little kid who just, <laughs> I'm just defining myself as a little kid back then, you know, when I just got my degree and I'm going to teach seminars, I was 24 years old talking to people way older who've been doing this way longer than me. And I remember being so nervous. I almost like, I almost fainted once because I was so nervous <laughs> that it immediately, I remember my mom was like, and I tell her this and she looked up or she talked to someone and she said, Toastmasters, you should do Toastmasters. And so I looked up Toastmasters and I did um, a year of a Toastmasters type of um, a club in California. 
And boy, I, the things I learned, it was painful. And boy, I was stressed before every meeting because you have to prepare speeches. Sure. You have times, timings. You have to be uh, voiced. You have to do voice inflections. You have to add co comedy. It was such a good experience. So I would recommend if people have not to consider Toastmasters. Yeah. That's a great recommendation for sure. And something that's been on my list for, for years and I keep on putting it off, but maybe now I'll, I will actually do it. This has been wonderful. What What's next for a froze? Um, I think, you know, city councils, I, I, I'm finishing my, my second term this year and I hope to run for another term at city council. It's been something very enjoyable. And I, I really, I, I love, I, I mean, I, I, I feel like this work is something that I've been kind of trained to do and, and I'm excited to do it. Um, but I, I've also been enjoying the um, interaction with other elected officials throughout my state. And so what I just recently got um, appointed to be on the uh, Counselors Association board representing my district. So it's more at the state level now with uh, as the district voice. And that's through the MMA, Massachusetts Municipal Association. So for me, next is now participating in that realm as well, like in, in conjunction is trying to take what I'm doing at the council level, but also try to bring in the state aspect that we can do and bring back to our local kind of municipal work as well. But that's for me right now. And then obviously with my family, my kids, you know, I'm just trying to also do the best I could to be here with them through these informative years, very, very informative years. That's great. Froskan, thank you so much for joining You're American welcome. Muslim Project. It was wonderful hearing your story and what you've done. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. You can find out more about the work that Afroz Khan is doing on her Public City Councilor Facebook page. We'll have a link to that in the show notes along with everything else that we talked about. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you have some free time, we'd love for you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or to share this podcast with your friends and also share any feedback that you have with us. We're always trying to improve the show. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafelion Media. Lindsay Gamble, Marconato, and me, Asad Butt, produced and edited the show. Music was by Simon Hutchinson. You can find out more at AmericanMuslimProject.com. Yeah.